The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free, straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Corey Kashner. How are you doing today, Corey? I'm great, Joe. Thank you. So first question, why West Point? Well, it's a pretty, pretty simple answer. So I, I wasn't connected with the military with any of my family. And the closest connection I had was the superintendent of our principal, who was also the dad of the guy who ended up being the best man at my wedding. He was a local recruiter for West Point. And once it's got close to making a decision on college, he, I was at his house one day, and I still remember this, that he goes, hey, have you considered West Point as one of your options? And I said, no, I don't know anything about it. And he goes, do you ever see the Army-Navy game? I go, yeah. He goes, that's West Point. And at the time, and it sounds silly now, I really thought that the Army-Navy game was just a bunch of soldiers that were in the Army, not that they were associated with a specific college. So I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I was like, is it expensive? Is it a good school? And then I started to do some research after about how, how competitive they are as an institution. Uh, but then he also said, they also pay you to go to college there. And I was like, say no more. <laughs> One of the things for college that was really important to me, and I don't know how long the typical answer is to a question, but this seems like I'm rambling on, but my parents spent a lot of money to, to pay for all of the activities we did with soccer growing up. Our, our soccer team in our area was an anomaly that we just had a bunch of kids in the same year group that were excellent and we traveled all over uh, and, and soccer is, was different back then than it is today. Um, but we went to, to Denmark, to Germany, across the United States, all over the place. And my parents gave every last dime they did to having these experiences, which were amazing experiences. So, um, 
I knew that they would try to do the same with college. So I, I wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to be a huge burden on them. Um, and this was, West Point was a perfect solution for multiple reasons. But that was really the driver for, for going there was the level of academics and the value of the education. Now, when was this discussion? Was this your sophomore year, your junior year? I think it was junior year. It, everything went pretty quickly after that. As soon as he said that, I was like, yeah, I'm in. And then started doing all the applications and the, and the letters and stuff. Did you have this like last minute, oh, I've got to go do this task or that task to buff up, beef up the resume? Or did the experiences that you had with soccer and your academics, were they pretty strong already? I, I, I'd say my mother was pretty relentless in, in pushing me through high school. So I, I had already done uh, the student council stuff and, and all of those extracurricular activities. My resume, and sometimes not by choice, was in pretty good shape as soon as we made that decision, which I would have to thank my mother for. But yeah, so there wasn't a lot of that. I think that it was pretty well set by that point. Now, did you visit West Point prior to the first day or the first time that you saw West Point was the day you walked into Mikey Stadium? Yeah, so I, I went and visited with the football team. I did a recruiting visit because I was the kicker for our football team. I went up and visited the football team and they had me up there to walk the stadium and visit the locker room and stuff like that. And then also met with the soccer team at that point that I was proactively recruiting myself for both of the, the teams because I visited West Point and visited the football team and the soccer team as well as did. They took me around and did the, the tour through those organizations. So when you walked into Beeft, was it a, a culture shock or did you have a, a, a more firm idea of what you were walking into, not just the Army Navy? I had very little idea. So I really had came in with very few expectations or ideas of, about what it was going to be. But I, I think my demeanor and my personality is pretty conducive to that, that nothing bothers me too much. Certainly being an athlete... Eh, like any of the athletes there, some of the physical rigor wasn't the worst part about it. And then the yelling with my personality, I don't think was a problem either. And I think that I'd enjoyed the structure of it, honestly, just somebody telling me where to be all the time. Some of that is a relief because there's not much thinking. You just go to the next event. I'll say the one thing that I did struggle with, which is funny reflecting back on it now, how important it was to me. I think the, I only considered leaving West Point two times my entire time there. And one was early on in Beast where everybody's reserved and held back and they don't share who they are and, and some of those things that um, I went to the counselor pretty on. I was like, listen, I don't think anybody here is like me. And I don't know that I can be friends with anybody here. Nobody, I, I'm not connecting with anybody. And if I can't connect with anybody, I, I don't think this is going to work out for me. That, that was one thing that really shook me when I started and it wasn't because there wasn't anybody like me. It was because nobody was opening up and being themselves. Um, if that makes sense. What made you think that? Is it because people were afraid to show weakness? Was it that they were just like, I, yeah. what kind of drove that? I don't know. I, I think I, I love to, to laugh and to kid and, and and it was really early on. So I think people were still trying to get adjusted to the culture and to, and to the situations. And there just wasn't a ton of those 
interactions to begin with that, um, that every time spent with, with the cadre that were out there, we're never exciting times where everybody's laughing and high-fiving. Um, so it, it's, I don't know. I just had that feeling early on that it was just really hard to connect with some people. And I see it a lot now. My kids are going to college now, which we can talk about in a little bit, but um, I see it right now that kids are having a really difficult time making that transition. So I think that's been around for a while and just finding your people can take some time. And I was just pretty impatient with that. What kind of broke the ice and helped build those relationships for you while you were at Westwood? It was just time. Then, not to belabor the point, but I tell my kids that now. It just takes time to to find those people and to open up to those people. And a lot of times people start off guarded so they don't reveal themselves right away. So all of that stuff just takes time. And the number of people that I did not like at West Point were extremely few. Just a lot of people that came to the same place with similar goals and sometimes with similar reasons. I, I don't know. It was just a group of people that had a lot more in common than they didn't with one another. For me, like the, the memories I remember the most are when you're under heavy stress and then there's some absurd moment that happens. So whether it's you're doing laundry and the room's full of just sweaty plebes trying to get the, the clothes organized and a, a weird name pops up on a t-shirt and then everyone starts laughing at <laughs> whether it's somebody that nobody likes or whether it's just a crazy name that no one could say. And then who wants to be the one that delivers to that room? I just remember those moments. And we, there was always that cool hand Luke. There was always that calm person in the room. And there was always that joker in the room that would make that moment just better. And the team would coalesce around that between the person who is being calm and deliberate and the person that's being like a, a wiseacre. And I think it was one of the, it, the, one of the issues that sometimes the core squatters talk about is they would build those relationships with their core squad teams, but not necessarily build those same relationships with their academic companies because they had fewer, they didn't have zero, but they had fewer of those absurd, stressful moments right. that break the ice and, and give you those kind of, those memories and opportunities to build that relationship deeper. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree. And I, I, those little moments are were really important to me. And I think that you hit it right on the head that the, those were moments that you cherish and help you see the light that the, this place is going to be all right. Yeah. And these people are, are human too. Like they're going through the same things that I'm going through. Cause sometimes like we were talking in the pre-interview, like some of these people appear to walk on water at moments. Like how the heck am I going to keep pace as a cadet with this person? And then also to lead because they make it look so easy. And it, I feel like I'm struggling. Yeah. Yeah. We mentioned Dave Oudlot earlier and he does walk on water, but the, the rest of the people are, are humans, but yeah, no, it's, I didn't feel a ton of that comparing myself to others and where they were at and, and the development that be summer, it was just getting to that academic semester was the real goal and the focus of that time. What were the favorite moments that you had while you were at West Point? What, what events, what activities did you really dive into? I, well, I played football my freshman year, and then I played soccer sophomore and junior year. And then my last year, I decided that I'd finished with the sports and decided just to bow out of all of that. But staying with that theme, certainly the experiences with the football team and with those guys, there's plenty of memories there. Even though I was just a kicker, there's people like Brendan Mullen and, and those guys that 
that I will remember forever. And then same thing on the soccer side. There's Thomas Obaseki and Brian Carlich and all those guys that I played soccer with that were all classmates. Tons of memories there. Some I probably shouldn't say on, on, on this interview, but just, just some really good memories with those guys. And then my favorite sports memory of all time was actually playing intramural football my senior year. It by far was the best thing that I did at West Point. We had some guys from the lacrosse team that, that ended up playing, didn't play their senior year. We had a couple guys from the soccer team that didn't play their senior year. Brian Frizzell from the powerlifting team who didn't do it his senior year. Where intramural football is largely freshmen and people that don't want to do it and couldn't get what they wanted, um, our team was almost all seniors of people that... <laughs> It just was like their last opportunity for greatness. And the whole experience was amazing. It was just, we laughed every play and it was just the most ridiculous thing. Um, but that is a, a memory that I do quite fondly cherish. Uh, yeah. You mentioned two names with Obaseki and with Frizz. They were both in G3 with me for my first two years. Oh, really? When, when oh, I imagined okay. that, when I was saying that name of being in the laundry room with the characters, like Tom. Tom and Fraser are characters. <laughs> yeah, they're great guys. There's yeah. so many great people there. And the only shame is a lot of times there you have pretty tight circles. And sometimes I look through the classmate, which is only, what, a thousand people. And I know that there's pockets of people that I never met there that it's a shame because I'm sure that there's a lot of really cool people that I never got connected with just because... A lot of times you keep pretty tight circles there. As you were getting towards that senior year and the decision for Brent, what really drove that dis that decision for you? This is the second decision point question you asked, and I feel like maybe I didn't put a ton of thought into some of these decisions, but the when I was thinking about getting out into the Army, and again, coming into West Point, it wasn't because I had this passion for the military, so there was no kind of lingering expectation or desire that, that I grew up with to do anything specific. So when it came time to choosing, there's different levels of intensity, right? And in the military, you got the guys going into the infantry that are really hardcore and, and intense guys that have a really difficult <clears throat> mission. And then you got the other spectrum that, that you have guys that are taking care of logistics and stuff like that has its own unique characteristics to it. But for me, I definitely, I wanted to go combat arms that, that it was, if I'm going to do it, let's do it. But I tempered that with, I'm not as hardcore as some of the guys going infantry and armor. So maybe field artillery is more my speed, which it, it really was. And it, it was a good fit for me personally that everybody has different needs. But for me, that was a good fit that there were a lot of my close friends that were in the field artillery which made officer basic school a fantastic time. And, and then just when, once I got to the unit, those group of guys were my people. So I was really happy with that decision. When you were getting closer to graduation and then you graduated, what was that moment for you and for your family? I don't know. That's, that's a good question. I've never really thought about what it meant. Certainly it meant that it was mission accomplished for graduating. Yeah. Like I said, there weren't too many times where there was only two times really where I considered leaving. I, I don't know. I, it was something that, that 
I set out and most people did set out day one that said, this is just something I'm going to do. And the day I graduated, we graduated, it, it was, there was some reward there, but it was checking the box that said, this is done. We did it. I didn't, I, I don't think that I realized the gravity of the situation, which I think is maybe a personal problem because a lot of times that I don't appreciate that. But the biggest thing was losing a lot of those day-to-day -day interactions with people that I really came to love. I think that was one of the biggest things for me. Even though I was going to see a lot of them at OBC, I think that was, while I did feel the power of accomplishing that and graduating and checking that off, there was some sadness there about potentially losing a bunch of really good lifelong friends. I think that's not unique to our classmates and to to West Point, which is the idea that sometimes you get so focused on the checklist of tasks that you're trying to knock out that appreciating the moment or appreciating the gravity of tra those transitions, you don't really feel it until after. And you're like, oh crap, did I really, did I really absorb how cool that opportunity was or that moment was? Did I really celebrate that accomplishment that myself and other people that I, I was with? Did I celebrate them enough or did I just move to the next task? Yeah, no, there's some of that. And we can blame some of that on the class of 2002 that stole, stole the president speaking at a graduation, but eventually I'll let that go, but still a little bitter. Paul Wolfowitz was fine. Fine. How was officer basic course for you at Port Sill? What was that like? It was, it was like a mini West Point, right? That, that all of these guys that, that I had spent tons of time with were all of the guys that we were in there with. There were some ROTC guys and some guys in there that, that transitioned from enlisted to officer, but 90% was West Point guys that were in our class. Taking the craziness and the goofiness of those guys in West Point, picking them out of West Point and dropping them into Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where there's not a ton to do, was just a really interesting dynamic and there was just a ton of silliness and a ton of fun. Uh, again, I, I think the, the difficulties of OBC physical mental was not the same as, as some of the things that we did at West Point. So from that standpoint, that wasn't super difficult. I, I just, I personally had a good time at OBC. I don't know if you're supposed to, but it was a really enjoyable experience for me. I, I saw it at a at officer basic course, but I saw it again at, at the career course. It seems like any time that you have a group of peers, they devolve to teenage privates. <laughs> um, and it doesn't matter if like they're O fives, O sixes, or senior uh, sergeant majors. It doesn't matter. And that, you're right that my career course experience, my officer basic course experience, the same thing. Yeah, no, it, it was a good time. When anytime you say officer basic. I almost immediately get a smile just because of the memories it brings back. Um, but that's the first thing that comes to mind is just being with those guys. And I think devolving, even though we were what, 22, I, I think we went back to 18, uh, 16. I don't know, but it was a mess, but it was a beautiful mess. When you graduated and moved out to your first unit, did you feel prepared? I think I was prepared in the sense that I was pre prepared to know that I didn't know anything. I think that there was some comfort in there that most of these people know that from a technical standpoint, I don't know as much as they do. Uh, 
and I was okay with that. So the weight of having to be an expert and needing to know everything for me wasn't there um, because I knew that most people's expectations weren't going to be there. So I didn't want to, I, I wasn't unrealistic with what I was expected to do and what I expected of myself to do. And, and again, the group of people that I was with in my first unit uh, were again in a different way in a very different way than West Point, but they were still what I felt were my people that I could understand them and all of those things. So I feel like I connected with all of them really quickly and then gave the respect to the enlisted NCOs that, that really picked me up and helped me out that they deserve. And all of that for me was not overwhelming at all. What impact did 9-11 have on your mindset and the mindset of your organization when you joined it? Like a lot of people, depending on how you first heard that story, I think that first impression has an impact on on maybe how you see that event. I know that our group was in the field when it happened, so we weren't in front of TVs. We didn't have phones, and the, the officer in charge of the group wasn't giving us much information. So it was just a really weird delivery of what was happening getting it secondhand for somebody while we were in the field and couldn't see any visuals of anything that was happening. So that first impression was maybe different than some people's because it's, I don't remember the time frame between when it happened and when we actually came out of the field. Um, but all of that had to sink in without any pictures or videos. Do you know what I mean? That it was just different that I didn't know what to feel because I wasn't sure exactly what happened. The one thing that the officer kept saying that I still remember is that our training that we were doing matters now more than ever because what just happened, we will not let stand. So that it was certainly humbling um, for me that all the goofiness of OBC immediately snapped out of everything that we were doing. So I don't know. Everybody has it. Like I said, everybody has a different experience about the moment that happened and the things that are running through your mind. But I know for me, similar to our experiences at West Point, when the coal was bombed or the embassy was bombed, or even the first attack on the trade center, when it was that car bomb in the, in the basement, even the pictures didn't really, you didn't understand the threat and you didn't understand the impact. Uh, and then when you see the videos of the towers, it shakes you to your core. That's something that is that large. Because it, it's hard to grasp the number of people that is. But it's even harder to grasp the, the, the sheer size of those two buildings and what brought them down. And it was similar for me as an armor officer that when we looked at the response, it didn't feel as big. It, seemed, it felt like the cold to me. Like something is happening that's impacting a portion of the military, but it's not impacting me. And it really took until the ramp up for Iraq to really see the scope of what we're going after. Because it wasn't just one appendage of the U.S. military. It wasn't just one finger. They're throwing the whole weight of the U.S. at it, both Afghanistan. And that's when it really struck me. Yeah. No, it, I, really, I, it, it took to that moment. It, yeah, I agree with that. that. There was that instantaneous feeling of, okay, something's going to happen and we need to be ready. And then that lull until 
honestly, in 2003, when most of the units started deploying for the first time, uh, that, that was a big window of time of what does this mean to me personally? Not that 9-11 was about me, but you're, what part do I play in this being in the military, having to respond and defend the country? Where do I fit in that piece and that puzzle? And there was a, a pretty big time of uncertainty from 2001 to ramping up for Iraq. What was your part of the puzzle? Our, our unit deployed in March, 2003. So I think we got there 10 days after the war started. I think they had already declared victory with our, our air force and first wave that destroyed everything in under a week. Yeah. It, it, my role was to do my job, right? That, that was the deal we made when we came into West Point and came into the army was to do your job. And that's, that was in, in simplicity, my, my role. What was that experience like for you? The deployment? Yeah. It was. The extreme emotions were, were pretty crazy. I mean, that it, maybe people outside the military find it, maybe don't appreciate the amount that, that you can sometimes lap being in conditions that, like exist in Iraq. But I think there was moments of extreme camaraderie and connecting with people at a different level that you would get pretty much nowhere, nowhere else besides a deployment. Our unit was MLRS field artillery, which we left all of our MLRS in Kuwait when we got there and became infantry for the next 13 months. That mission was very, very foreign to us. That, that first, first wave that went over there with softback Humvees that had the doors taken off and all of those things, cause we thought that was the right thing to do and not being trades as extensively as people that were in infantry and, and the tactics of infantry was a little concerning as we were rolling north. But again, from our, our unit did some really good things and, and, but at the same time, they were not the certain, the level of intensity and, uh, that a lot of other units had. We have many classmates that I've talked to and, and my experience kind of pales in comparison to the things that they went through. I would not even think to hype up what I did there personally, because it pales in the comparison to what our friends and, and peers did there. But that, there's tons of stories and tons of unforgettable moments, again, high highs and, and low lows. So, Did you have one of those like high stress moments where there's an absurd thing that happened and then you're like, holy crap, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. There, there were plenty of those that I think one of our Humvees broke down on the major highway going from, and to be safe, we shut down like six lanes, six lanes of traffic to, to repair the tire. And, and my, just thinking this is lawless. Like it, it's. Where else would you just shut down six lanes of highway because somebody got a flat tire? It was, even though it was something minor, it was one of those moments where you just stepped outside of the situation and, and thought, what is going on here? Um, but the, yeah, there, there were some, there were many crazy experiences there that I will take with me for a long time. I remember we were going through, it was West Baghdad. 
and we threw track because the track wasn't getting resupplied. So we were just trying to like baby that stuff and keep it going. We did a hard pivot turn to the right as we were turning around a block and threw out about five tons of steel on the ground when our, our track broke. And we had this crowd over the course of the next three hours go from 20 to 30 to 40 to almost 250, 300 people. And as a platoon leader, we have this wounded vehicle and you have all these people around you. It's early on, the insurgency wasn't super strong. People just didn't know what to do, but you're that leader is, I don't know what to do. Like yeah. we're waiting for a, a vehicle to come recover and help us out because we couldn't put the track back together. It had been beaten up and run so much. And it was a combination of the absurdity of this could be very bad. And then you have all these like local Iraqis that just want to look at your tank. And then we had a vehicle with a, a crane come up and say they would help us. And that ended up being how we fixed the, the track, got it back on and limped our way back to the bottom. But it was that absurd moment as a leader. It's like, how do I engage the local populace? Is there a risk? Is there not a risk? Are people trying to gather information on my tank? It's just all those crazy things that go through your mind as a 20 year old kid. And you're not really sure where you stand in the world um, and what you can do. It, yeah, I mean, we had similar situations where we'd get Hemet stuck driving through some tight roads and stuff like that. And <laughs> the crowd building was something that was, and again, being early on was, I think, maybe a different situation than it was later. But just that uneasiness feeling you get as more and more people start to come around and the uncertainty of what you're supposed to do next, it's, <laughs> that is overwhelming. You asked about starting the unit, if any of that was overwhelming. Being in those types of situations where there was actual danger, if you messed up as a second lieutenant, there's no actual danger. There's, there, there's nothing that can't be corrected or fixed or you eat a piece of humble pie and move on. Those were areas that there was real concern and real areas of being intimidated by what's going on. Yeah. And, and on what did you have as a reference? You had, you had Black Hawk Down. You had like movies. That was your only frame of reference when you walked in there. Right. And you had to lean heavily. My, my platoon sergeant was in Mogadishu with 10th, 10th, 10th mountain during Black Hawk Down when that event happened. And then I had several NCOs that were in Kosovo and Bosnia. And those were the people I had to lean on that they had seen something similar, not exactly the same, but, <laughs> but similar enough that they knew the difference between what a real threat was and what a real, what this threat could be but isn't yeah and, and honestly i think that one one of the biggest things i think i took away from west point and, and the military and specifically in that situation is knowing when to get stressed about things there's people are stressed every single day at work and having some context about where and when you should be stressed is part of that decision making process in every situation and and it's I think that is one of the things that, that is maybe not completely unique to, to our extended family in the military, but I, I think that's one of the first decision points for somebody is, do, should I be stressed and should I be worried about this? And going through those scenarios and that analysis. And if you start off with that, especially in the civilian world, it, there's very few things from a business side that you should be stressed out about. If you can eliminate 90% of those as a first decision point, it, it, it makes the way you conduct your business very different and very 
uh, fission. Talk me uh, through what it was like to redeploy from Iraq and where you went next. Again, not unique to me because a, a lot of those things happen to, to other people. But while I was in Iraq, my grandparents died and my first child was born. So there was a lot of things on the personal side that happened while I was gone that I couldn't participate in or, or be part of. Missing the first months of my son's life was was tough. And it was tough because I didn't know what that meant. And again, talking about graduation and not understanding the gravity of it, I just didn't know what that meant to miss the first six months of your son's life or first nine months of your son's life. The environment that I came back to, <laughs> leaving without a child, coming back and having a child, that was that was certainly something different. But the transition back in terms of on the personal side, the mentality side, I think for me, again, not being in a super intense environment that some of my friends were in, I think it was maybe an easier transition for me personally to come back and assimilate. There was still many months after driving down the road and seeing suspicious things like a cardboard box laying on the side of the road and going from 70 to 35 on the highway because you were concerned about something laying next to the road. I don't know. You experienced the same type of thing, but that was one of the most pronounced things for me is being ultra aware of IEDs in, in country and then coming back and just turning that off right away was something that was a little bit difficult. But uh, again, based on our experience of what we had there, for me personally, it was not a super hard transition. But on the personal side, it just came back to a very different environment for me, being a father as I came back, but not one when I left. I know that the two for me was the hyper awareness, just like you talked about when you're driving, just checking your mirrors a lot, looking left and right yep. and seeing what's, if you're going to go under an overpass, I would always check the top of the overpass. <laughs> yep. yep, absolutely. Um, and then the other one was the ghost weapon. Like I was constantly checking, where's my rifle? Where's my pistol? And it was like, I don't have a rifle. I don't have a pistol. Stop checking. Yeah. That took me a little no. bit to turn off. Yep. The decision to stay or go at the end of your initial military service obligation. Was that driven by this discussion? I think a little bit going in, my mentality was that I made a deal with the government that they would give me four years of excellent education and I'd give them five years of excellent service. And if we're all square at that point, then we're all square. Outside of the people that I met and maybe the, the gravity of the mission that the military had, there wasn't any other factors that that convinced me that I needed to stay and there was things left for me to do in the military. I also, at by the time that I had left, had had my second child. So part of me wanted to just remove them from that environment and give them a similar experience that I had in my childhood that I was really lucky of just where I was born and, and who my parents were that you can't change the situation that you're born into. And I was born into to a great situation. And I felt like if I could give that experience to my kids, that they would be very lucky. So that to me was the biggest driver, not for me personally, but for my kids, that if they could have even close to the same experience I had with schooling, with meeting friends, with being in a community that we were in, 
that they'd be lucky to. So that's ultimately the driver and ultimately why we moved back to, to Pennsylvania. Talk me through that transition, leaving the military, going to the civilian world and saying, I'm going to go back to my hometown and my family. Did that drive some of your decisions for career options? Yeah. So I've always loved the stock market. I think it's maybe white, white collar gambling for a lot of people that in, I heard trading penny stocks at West Point and being late for class because I was waiting for it to go up one more penny before I sold it and then sprinted to class. But there was an intensity with doing that, with analyzing companies and picking the right companies. And you don't realize until you're much smarter than I was that almost nothing when you read stuff online and you're so far behind the, the curve of what's going on to do that in a good way is very difficult. But no, that, that was something I, I really wanted to do. Um, but if I was going to move to York, Pennsylvania, that would be something that I would most likely need to give up because I wouldn't be going to, to the heart of the action. But yeah, for me, that was something that would have, that I could have gotten passionate about would be that industry and to come to York, Pennsylvania and get into that industry. One of, I had two interviews outside of defense contracting, both with banks that really on the outside of, of that market, but sometimes it's a hard sell as a lot of military people know that to go to a bank and tell them that I'm going to be awesome because I was in the military, uh, depending on who you're talking to, sometimes it translates and sometimes it doesn't. And, and really in the instances that I had <clears throat> with, with the salary that I'd be eligible kind of coming in at the beginning wasn't something that I could support with the family. So ultimately did not go that direction. But to answer your question, yes, I did have to sacrifice things that, that I wanted to do from a career perspective because my non-negotiable was to move back to the New York area. So where did you go? What in what company? Being in that Northeast corridor, there are, there's a good amount of defense contractors. Aberdeen Proving Grounds is not too far away. BA Systems is in my hometown of York, Pennsylvania. So there's a good presence of defense contractors. The one that I ended up starting with was a company called AAI, which was then bought out by Textron after I left. But yeah, so they made the the Shadow and they also made a, a drone called the Arizon. So supporting Marines and Special Forces Command. And just had a, at the time, back in 2006, where, where drones weren't commonplace just a sexy product with a cool mission. And again, speaking all that language of the military, a very easy transition and felt like uh, almost to an extent that I was assigned to a different unit, but there was some, there was some transition elements to it that, um, I remember the first two weeks that I was called calling a lady by her last name and not everybody appreciates that. So do not ever call me by my last name again. So there was still some of those nuances of transitioning out of the military that, that I had to get used to, but going from military to defense it is not ripping off a bandaid and doing something completely different. What was that experience like? Were you standing up teams? Were you pushing out shadows to companies or not to companies, but to organizations and doing the whole kind of RFI and the train up and all that stuff? Were you involved with that? Yes, yeah, so I was assigned to the logistics group. So logistics and defense includes tech manuals and training and provisioning and all of those types of things to sustain 
a, a vehicle or a platform in the system. So, so it was things that I was familiar with, right? That, uh, that everybody's familiar with tech manuals in the, in the military, everybody's familiar with training. So again, very comfortable area for me to work in. Um, but it, that time really was increased areas of responsibility that, that I came in at a, a fairly low level and, and just continued to, to want more and to prove myself in different areas. It started with a really small group and then again, just continued, uh, not necessarily managing more people, but managing more activities throughout those first three years. How did you go from really that kind of entry level? Was it just your, you just kept getting more work? You know, how it's the, the strong ranger, the strong soldier who performs that the, the reward is more work. Is that really what you saw the civilian world too? It, yeah, I feel like, uh, again, the conversation is not all about West Pointers, but I think that there's a, a level of inf- efficiency <laughs> that, that we were raised <laughs> with during those core years that you have to get your stuff done and how much you want to go do something personal is depends on how efficient you can be on getting your stuff done. So I, I feel like once I got to work that there was a level of intensity matched with a level of efficiency that maybe wasn't commonplace with every single person there. And, and just during those eight hours a day or whatever that you'd be at work, the amount of work that you can actually get through when you're being intense and being purposeful and being efficient, sometimes it, it, it usually stands out that says, we'll just keep giving them more because they keep doing more. And if you're going to be at work for eight hours, you, you might as well be getting stuff done. So it's not like there was an expectation. I'm going to give you more work and now you're going to stay here for 12 hours. It's, I'm going to give you more work and you can continue to use that intensity and efficiency to get it done. So that's, again, I think that's just part of how, how we were taught and one of the benefits of going through those experiences that, that we did in our twenties, young twenties. How did you end up being, like you're growing from really that entry level all the way up to a CEO of a company. What was that like? So I went from AI to BA systems, which a lot of that was more of the same, that it was a defense contractor that had, had the logistics, the same types of things that AI had just at a larger level. So just those increasing levels of responsibility, more people managing more money, managing higher level activities, all of those things, just a real smooth curve, just uh, like that growth. If just thinking about it on the graph level, just a real straight line going up in terms of grace. At, at some point, my last year or so at BA system, that line of growth really plateaued off. Uh, and I was like, okay, I, I need to do something. I need to do something different because if I don't, I will just, I don't know when this plateau will stop. So I said, I'm going to completely remove myself from the military from the defense, I, I don't think that I can continue to grow if I just stay in this sector and never see anything else outside of this environment. So I, I made a decision to leave defense and go do something else. And through the networking, which I did not appreciate at the time, I think when I say that I was networking, I think I talked to three people, 
but having grown up in this area, it is not, it's not a big town. So the amount of people that I knew from high school or that I grew up with in this area or connected to the family, there was plenty of secondary and tertiary connections that once I made the decision to move on, there, there were some opportunities out there. And actually one of the gentlemen that I was networking with, and he was a year older than me in high school, but I certainly respected him on the business side. I truly just wanted some advice from him. So I can, I, I met with him several times just to understand the commercial world outside defense, <clears throat> understanding who I should connect with and how I should approach the market. And it just so happened that his COO resigned to go move on to do something on a personal side. But one of the three people that I've actually been talking to had an opening for this role, which was, it was vice president of operations at the time. So he's, do you want it? And I said, yeah, let's do it. That's how I got into that, which isn't, wasn't through a lot of struggles uh, and grinding it out through the interview process, which plenty of people do. I, I, I don't want to say that it was lucky. It was just a, an, an opportunity that just came up. So once, once I got in that position, again, it was a whole, bringing a whole new set of skills to, uh, something completely unrelated to defense. So it was a great growth experience for me, um, to come into this environment that, that I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know anything about and, and grew the company through organic growth, through acquisitions, through introducing new product lines and stuff like that. So all things that I would not have experienced in defense, I got to do there working with designers, working with marketers, working in manufacturing, it, it really opened my eyes to, to a ton of things that I'd never would have seen. So from day one, I was very excited and very happy about making that transition. I know I've talked to other classmates about what is cool about West Point is the number of things you're forced to be exposed to. And when you're, you are exposed first, there's that like kind of trepidation, like, should I really be doing this? I'm not really good at that. But it's almost like going back to York forced you to let, by constraining your options, it actually forced you to be open to other opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily have exposed yourself to. Very similar to like you talked about that structure limiting you at West Point, but also giving you less to worry about and more to focus on. It, yeah. I told you before you, we talked that you are pretty insightful and have some good questions. You're dead on that, that I constrained myself and said, you have to be in York. If an opportunity comes up that is in print manufacturing that has nothing to do with anything I've done. I can't constrain myself yet again and say, no, I'm going to eliminate that from the things that I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to force myself to figure out, is this a fit and does this make sense? Because constraining yourself to a single location is, is a pretty, pretty big constraint when it comes to professional. Yeah, you're dead on that. That was certainly one of the major factors that I don't know how many of these opportunities will come up. So. Whether I like it or not, I got to take it and see what happens. What's the biggest like learning curve? What was the biggest takeaway that you got from that experience? I don't know. I've never thought about that. The, the first thing that came to mind was things aren't as hard as you think they are. When you think about marketing and say, I have no idea what that means. And I could never do that. 
you probably can. Same thing with all the different areas. We had really good people in each of these functions in, in sales and design and marketing and the different areas of manufacturing. Uh, people that were really excellent at their jobs, but none of it was, none of it was undoable, right? That I don't know what the best word would be, but all of it was intimidating because you didn't know any of it. But once you really dug in, it, it was all things that, that made sense and were manageable. And there's no reason to be scared of some of those things. And I think that one of the things that, that the army taught was to dig in, that you got to dig in with the soldiers. You got to find out who they are and figure out what they do. And you need to figure out what is their day-to-day -day activity. And if I don't understand their job, then I can't understand their problems and understand their concerns if I don't truly understand who they are and what they're doing. And, and carrying that same approach to business, I think sometimes is atypical that people in higher level positions concern themselves with that higher level strategy and don't take the time to dig in. Um, and maybe it, one of my faults is maybe I do that too much digging in, but it, it's really important to me. And I think it, you have to have that base of understanding to, to really make the right decisions for the people and, and for the business. It's really that the ability to transition between strategic to operational, to tactical level thinking, planning and coordination. I didn't truly appreciate the tools that we were getting at West Point to see that bigger picture and then to, to dive into that smaller tactical picture back. And some people can't live in all three of those realms. And that really limits their opportunity to add value. And if you can help them transition or to see those three worlds better, you can really bring out the their ability to help the team and also to help the organization grow and, and have success. Yeah, no, I agree. Put on. The transition from being a COO and then going back to the defense world and being a CEO, what has that been like? Coming back to defense was not something I expected. I'm surprised as anyone that I came back to defense. I had what I feel is a very similar experience to, to when I peaked out at, in terms of my learning and my professional development at BAE and, and the group that, that I was in, I got there that I almost started a new graph with my new position and started at the bottom to learn all these things. Wow. And again, the way that I felt that I, I dug in and learned that there was a really intense period of learning and, and figuring out all of these different areas that I had not been exposed to previously. And I feel like, again, I came up to that plateau that said, you know what, maybe there's 10 to 15% more that I can learn when I started at zero, that, that it's just going to, the amount that I'm going to learn from here until, till I, I move on is, is going to be limited in my mind, made the decision that I need to start getting ready for that next experience. That's going to push me. And that's going to challenge me to be better in, in that area. So again, started networking. This time I tried to do it for real instead of just talking to three people that I was comfortable with. So I started doing the network activity online and really just did people from the academies. And it was, and, and started off by this very simple request, which, and, and it was a genuine request that 
I, I just want you to give me some advice on how to move forward. Give me some advice on who you think I should talk to because my opportunities with the constraints I put in place are going to be fewer than ever, right? The, the amount of opportunities you have as a project manager moving back to York versus being a CEO or above in New York, those opportunities get exponentially small. So I really needed help because I could not do that on my own and started doing this networking thing and talking to all these classmates. And again, similar to what you're doing with the conversations that you've been having with classmates, the amount of people that I talked to and their experiences and their successes were just crazy. What some of these people have done is just each one individually is an awesome story. But one of my biggest constraints from a personal side, I think, was my ability to connect with somebody I've never talked to. Um, certainly being introverted, that is not where I want to live, <laughs> new conversations with new people. Uh, so that is an area that I struggled with. And, and without going through that process of networking, uh, I, I don't think I would have got to the level of comfort that I needed to get to, um, to be confident in that area. That transition really started by networking and pushing myself really hard in an area that was extremely important and I was not good at which was that networking, being extroverted, being engaged and w with other people. So that, that's how that kicked off. How I got the job had nothing to do with any of that. So I won't say that the effort was wasted, but again, some of that was, and we talked about this a little bit before, is putting yourself in a position where when that next decision point comes up or with that next piece of luck comes in, or that unexpected event occurs, you put yourself in position to, to make that pivot. And mentally and professionally, I put myself in position to make that next change. And a, an opportunity was brought to me out of nowhere that said, hey, we're starting up a new company. And of all places in North America, we have chosen York, Pennsylvania to start this company. And I said, are you sure you want to do that? And after they said, yeah, I said, okay, then I'm in. The interview, we had a couple interviews with some people from Italy that, that were at the headquarters moving here. Um, and for me, the most important thing was the CEO of our headquarters flew out here to meet with BA Systems because we were partnering on a new vehicle for the Marine Corps. And... While he was here, he interviewed me for that role. And in talking to him, my only real question was, are you all in on this facility in New York, Pennsylvania? And if your answer is yes, then my answer is yes. That was the only thing that I cared that we could sort out all of the details because uh, moving into a new building that we'd have to gut from scratch and rebuild and outside of our initial contract, didn't have a series of contracts that were going to be in the pipeline following this. Just a ton of unknowns. But to have that personal commitment that we're all in is really all I needed to make that jump. One of those things, when I joined my first brigade, it was a separate brigade. It was 3rd Brigade 180 at Fort Riley, Kansas. And the rest of the division was in Germany. And so you're away from the flagpole and you're away from a lot of the politics. But the other part, like you said right there is, man, I'm so far away. Do you get, if I run into problems by myself, I like being by myself. I like having the autonomy, but will you support me or will you leave me hanging? 
And I heard exactly that because that, there's that value your headquarters is based out of Italy and you're this lone and unafraid organization standing up in, in Pennsylvania. And if things go bad, it's, it's that fear that's just on me to keep this ship afloat. Um, having that commitment from the CEO, having the commitment from that team back in Italy, I bet that was really powerful. Yeah. And indirectly, you made a great point that one thing that was really important to me in that decision was if I go out and hire people, I need to confidently look them in the face and say, if I hire you, you're going to have a job here and we're not going to close chores in, in six months or eight months. That for me personally, if that was a situation and that happened, then okay, I'll deal with it and, and I'll be fine and, and I'll figure something out. But to interview people and look them in the eye and say, this is a great opportunity for you to, and to be sincere and be confident in that, that was really important to me. And to have the headquarters say that they're all in gave me that confidence to, to tell that to the people that I hired and started bringing on. It goes back to that other discussion we were having. Is you don't have to be the smartest guy or girl in the room. As long as you have a room full of smart people and you can enable and empower them. But in order to recruit those people, man, you got to build some trust and you got to maintain it. Yeah, I'm all about trust. I think that is, is fundamental for me. And some of it's atypical. And in, in some cases, it, it might go against what's best for the business. I've told employees that I've had in the past and have told my current employees that if things aren't working out for you here and you decide that you're going to leave, I'm not going to fire you and we will work together to find you another job that I will help you with your resume and I will help you transition and I'll help you look for a job and we can work together that, that maybe there's a break in the action where the transition doesn't happen out perfectly that another manager may just be, okay, if you're gone, I'm going to start hiring somebody right now that I, if I do that for one person and everybody sees that, then again, that trust kind of ripples through that says this person is sincere, that they care about me and they care about my livelihood and care about my family. Cause you can say that all you want, but until you actually do something that proves it, um, it's just lip service until you, you can actually have the opportunity to act how you say. What does success for you now in your current position look like? You talked about plateaus in previous jobs and pre previous organizations. What does success look like from your current position? I don't know. I, I, that, that should be an answer that I know. The, I, I mean, so much has revolved around being successful to provide for the family and provide to my kids. And my kids are coming of age where they're, I have two in college and one is a senior in high school and what success looks like. I think that definition is going to change that soon. My kids will be completely on their own and will be finding their own goals and their own successes and defining what that looks like for themselves. Uh, but I think a lot of my definition of success has revolved around providing for my kids and building a situation where my kids are happy and where they're have opportunities and, and they're learning and all of those things. And as that chapter is coming to a close, I, I think I'll have to redefine that, which I haven't yet. It, it, I've always been under the mentality that, that being, being an athlete, a lifelong athlete and, and being in those areas in the military where losing isn't an option, 
I think that alone propels you to move forward. And all of the opportunities that have come my way that I've been lucky enough to get weren't overly thoughtful. They've just come into place because of that mentality of wanting to win, wanting to do a good job. And it just continued to build on itself. But yeah, it's a great question that I need to redefine for myself because what previously that definition meant is not what it's going to mean in the future. As we wrap up, do you have any closing comments to the class? Saying it to the class would be pretty overwhelming because I don't know that I have any advice for classmates who are probably more successful than I am and and know more than I do. But I'll just say one one of the things that has been important to me in all areas throughout my entire life has been the connection with others. And I don't, it's weird as an introvert to say that's one of the most important things to me is my connections with others, but it is truly meaningful. And without those, again, I wouldn't have gone to West Point. If I wouldn't have been able to found those connections, I wouldn't have stayed there for four years. And same thing along the way that each of my experience has been positive and they've been successful because of other people. One area of my life that I've been unsuccessful in is doing a good job with keeping the long distance relationships going, uh, not living a life full of regrets, but that, that is one area that I'm not good at, that I need to be better at because there's tons of people that are very meaningful to me that I struggle to to be proactive and reaching out and staying engaged. If I'm not seeing them every day, I'm seeing them on a weekly basis. Uh, that That's one thing that I do regret that I'm not better at. Uh, because you do lose a little bit of that connection if you don't talk to people for a really long time. And it makes me sad because I have some incredible friends from West Point that I wish I was more engaged with. I don't know that it's in vice, but it's just something that I think one of the most meaningful things to me is finding those people that that are your people and hold them, hold them close. I know one of the unexpected kind of benefits of this whole interview process in the podcast and connecting with my old close friends and then making new ones and hopefully sharing your story will help kind of jumpstart some of those old connections and get them going again. No, that's good stuff. You're doing great stuff here, Joe, and I appreciate it. And I love listening to everybody's story. And you do a great job facilitating and bringing their stories to life. Again, I appreciate you sharing everything you have today, Corey. And thank you for sharing your story. All right, buddy. We can conclude with anybody that's listening should congratulate Joe for getting his new bench press record. Some duty is done. Yes, sir. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Thank you. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, 
Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.